This is Celebration Church, but it's more than just a building or a church. We have a calling to be a place where people can find a relationship with God instead of religion. A place where freedom is found and acceptance given, and every person can discover their purpose and experience the kind of fulfillment only God can give. Together we will raise, lead, and empower a generation to change the world. Here, Jesus is famous, and all the glory goes to God. This is celebration. This is our family. Welcome home. Well, I'd like to welcome all of those who are joining us from our Fox Valley campus at this time. And of course, those of you who are in the room with us as well, good morning to you again. Would you all stand with me, please, as we recite the Apostles' Creed? This is our statement of faith. That's what we believe in as a church here at Celebration Church. We believe in God, the Father Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who for us and for our salvation was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the fellowship of believers, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Well, at this point in the service, we like to remind you how we take our offering. And this day and age, there are just so many ways that you can give. It's just kind of a fun time in history, I suppose. Um, if you like to give into the offering by putting in a check or cash, we're just delighted by that. You'll notice in your seat backs that there are some envelopes that you can use for that purpose. And when you leave today, the ushers will have some buckets that you can just drop those in. But we know that many of you also enjoy the digital um, expressions of giving. So we just wanna remind you that you can always go to our church website and sign up for recurring giving. That helps us tremendously with budget. We can just plan for the things that are coming in. Um, and then we also have the Celebration Church app, and it's really an easy way to give. If you open up the app, there's a button that says give, and you can just click on that. And it's especially helpful for Sundays like today, as you heard Pastor Keith offer the our missions update. We do take one Sunday a month that we try to just bring some special focus to the area of missions um, and those things that we just we strive to support that are really outside of our, our our, our own context. Um, and so we have lots of partners locally and in our country and overseas as well that we just strive to bring support to who are really doing incredible things for the kingdom of God. Um, so we just encourage you also, if you would um, consider a gift that would go specifically to missions, um, we want you to know that all those missions dollars get pushed back out towards, um, towards our partners as well to continue to support kingdom work um, in all parts of the world. So we just thank you for that. The app is really a great way to do that too because you have the option when you jump on there, you can just do a one-time gift and designate um, that you might like it to go to missions, but you can use that for all of your giving as well. Um, at any rate, we are just so grateful for your faithfulness in giving. Um, as a reminder, you heard it on the news, but we do have our State of the Church meeting tomorrow night, so we're looking forward to just providing an update for all of you about um, just where things are and where things are heading, and um, it's just such a great testimony to your faithfulness um, to the ministry of Celebration Church as well, so we really do hope that you're gonna join us. Um, as you notice, this is usually the part in the service where you would see Pastor Mark by this point, but, um, but he's clearly not 
here or you wouldn't have me right now. Um, but he is traveling, they're still in the midst of, this is that time of year when so many people are just hungry for his, his marriage seminar. So he's had an opportunity this weekend. He's out in Kentucky, I believe it is. Um, but he had a message that he really wanted to make sure that he could share with all of you. Um, so he did come in and he pre-recorded. So we are gonna get Pastor Mark today. Um, this is normal experience for our Fox Valley campus, but it's a little bit unusual for our Green Bay campus, but we're gonna have him up on the big screens. Well, we always have him up on the big screens, um, but we usually have him here in the center as well. But, um, but I'm looking forward to it. So I was kind of like, I don't, am I introducing the guest speaker? It's very odd because he's clearly not the guest speaker. But at any rate, um, I give to you, Pastor Mark. Today is the seventh Sunday in the season of Epiphany. So we'll be talking about the importance of having moments of revelation where God turns the lights on for you. And we're coming now to the end of the season of Epiphany, although this idea always needs to carry forth. I mean, at the end of the day, the Holy Spirit has to make things come alive to us for us to grasp it. I cannot tell you how many times I've talked to people and just everything <laughs> just went over their head. And then one day I'll say the same thing and they'll come up to me and said, that was amazing. That changes my life. And I think, you've been here for three years. You've never heard this? I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Even though I've said the exact same thing, what happens? The light goes on. And it's really important. If you're here today and struggling in your faith, something you might want to pray about. God, turn the lights on for me so I can begin to understand your truths. And we have an important truth today uh, that we want to bring to you now. We are going to be reading from Genesis uh, about the story of Joseph. And it's a rather long story, and I'm going to kind of summarize it for you. For those of you who are not very familiar, those of you who are, it's always, always good to reflect on it again. But you have the patriarchs of the Jew Jewish nation. God calls us a special nation to himself, starting with Abraham. There's Abraham, and then his son Isaac, and then Isaac has Jacob. So got Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob then has 12 sons. And God changes uh, Jacob's name to Israel. And these are then the 12 tribes of Israel. In, in Jacob's case, um, he marries, uh, well, he, he, there's these two sisters, Rachel and Leah. And uh, he made a deal with their father to marry Rachel but at the last minute, he <laughs> flips the tables on him and he winds up with Leah. And he's not very happy about this. Apparently, Rachel was gorgeous and poor Leah was just the unattractive sister. She just wasn't very attractive. And, uh, uh, but I mean, he stayed married to her, but then he also got Rachel. So he's got the two sisters that he's married to. You can imagine the tension in that place, all right? Well, what happens is the unattractive sister, Leah, starts having babies, boop, pop, pop, one after another. And Rachel isn't having any. And this creates a great deal of stress between the two sisters. And, you know, this is what, six, 7,000 years ago. Uh, it's a whole different world, what they understood about this, that, or the other, who knows. I just know that Rachel gets really mad at Jacob and says to him, how come you're giving her children, but you're not giving me children? And Jacob says, what? I, I can't do anything about this. Am I God? You know, so all this pressure builds. So what uh, 
Rachel does is he gives uh, Jacob her maidservant. Because in that culture, in those years, again, this was a long time ago, a woman could have children through her maidservant. Very strange to us, but that's the way it worked. So Jacob goes, uh, sleeps with her, and then she gets pregnant, and that way um, she starts having a baby after her name. Uh, starts relieving the temperature a bit, but uh, it still is intense. Uh, Le- uh, Rachel pressures Jacob into not having relations with Leah anymore until she can kind of catch up. <laughs> it's bizarre. I call it the baby wars. So uh, Rachel gets mad and she says, well, if you don't want to be with me, be with my maidservant and gives him her maidservant. And he goes, okay, and starts having children through her. Uh, and then at one point, um, uh, Rachel had some flowers or herbs or something that uh, Leah did that Rachel wanted. And she says, give me some of those. And she says, I'm not giving it to you unless you let me be able to sleep with my husband again. And she says, okay, you can have him. I mean, it's nuts, all right? So they're going back and forth. At the end of the day, they wind up with 12 boys. And they go on and create this incredible nation. They're known as the 12 tribes of Israel. Most of them come from Leah. All right, but then we have uh, Rachel, who was uh, Jacob's favorite, and, and Joseph comes along, and then eventually uh, Benjamin, and poor Rachel dies giving birth to Benjamin. And uh, so anyway, these boys are growing up. About the time uh, Joseph is about 17 years old, at this point, it's very well established. He's dad's favorite, you know? Why do people have favorites? I don't know. It's, it's not that you don't love the other kids or anything, it's just... Some people just get along better. I don't know. There's, everybody has a different personality. You can have two kids. One can be, have a total different uh, personality than another. You can imagine having 12 and how many differences there are. Anyway, Joseph just really clicked with dad. And dad just, and, and the boys could tell, you know, that he f- favored Joseph and he'd give Joseph special attention. And, and then he gave him this real fancy coat, multicolored coat, which was a big deal back in those days. Uh, So anyway, so Joseph starts having dreams and he has this one dream where in a nutshell, he sees his brothers and dad all bowing down to him. And Joseph tells his brothers this dream. Well, now they're furious thinking, you little snot, you think someday we're going to bow down to you? So it creates really bad tensions. These guys hate their brother. Sometimes you hear siblings say, I hate you, you know, no, but this is real, real hate. Uh, And they conspire, they're out working, and they conspire to kill him. So they grab Joseph, and they're going to kill him. Well, one of the brothers has a moment of clarity. He says, no, guys, let's not kill him. Okay, let's sell him, all right? We'll get some money out of the deal and we'll tell dad that a lion or a bear or whatever has killed him and, uh, and they'll fake his death. So, uh, of course, Joseph is seeing all this, right? His brother's all turning on the trying to kill him. At the last minute, they take him and they sell him to a band of travelers going through. And uh, so now he's in slavery and then they take the, uh, his his 
coat and stuff and dip it in some animal's blood and stuff. And, and they go tell dad, Joseph was killed. Now the dad is mortified. He's howling. He's in deep mourning. I mean, these brothers, they're mean. I mean, to see your own dad go through that and you know that the kid didn't die, but you tell him he did. That's how deeply they hated him and resented him, particularly when I was having these dreams saying someday they're, they're going to bow down to him. Uh, and uh, so they put dad through this horrible situation. And now poor Joseph. Joseph is now, he has gone from a life of relative luxury, uh, not in terms of 21st century luxury, but I mean, dad is loaded. Okay, Jacob is an extremely wealthy man with his huge family and all these herds and stuff that they had control of. And he was dad's favorite. And now he's a slave and uh, he can't, he has, he's that, he has no freedom. He can't go where he wants to go. He just has to do whatever he's told to do. And uh, so he's on this traveling band of guys that eventually wind up in Egypt. Uh, and you can imagine how frustrating this would be. And what a shock to your system, right? To go to even all, any of us, none of us are all that kind of wealthy, but just, just from our version of comfort, to all of a sudden wind up as a slave and someone telling us what to do all the time. You can't go where you want to go and rest when you want to rest and eat when you want to eat. Uh, it would be miserable. And all of this because of what his brothers did to him. So eventually, so he's gone. Who knows how long it takes, but before he finally gets to Egypt and they sell him to a guy named Potiphar. So he's the servant now in Potiphar's house. Well, Joseph is doing really well. He had a great work ethic that he'd learned from his family. So he's serving Potiphar really well and things are going pretty good for him considering the circumstances. Um, he's still a slave, but he's a house slave and has some comforts with that. Well, Mrs. Potiphar, the Bible tells us, gets the hots for Joseph. And he, she starts hitting on him and trying to get him to come sleep with her. And he refuses and says, I, I can't do that. I mean, he had a sense of right and wrong and of nothing else. My master, who's her husband, has been so kind to me. I, why would I do that to him? So he runs away from her. And as he's running away, she, she grabs his coat. Uh, and then she's furious that this punk little kid turned her down. Uh, and then she takes the coat and claims that uh, she has it because he tried to rape her. So this is, you know, false accusation against uh, him. The husband finds out about it. He's furious and uh, he has Joseph imprisoned. So as if your life isn't hard enough, now you wind up in prison. And we're talking, we're not talking Brown County lockup here. We're not talking 21st century confinements. All right, we're talking 70,000 years ago. Uh, man, just even 1,500 years ago, what prisons were back then. Can you imagine thousands? Of, a prison basically was to put you through hell without you dying. I mean, as close as it can be, it's miserable, it's horrible. And all because of what his brothers had done to him. And you can imagine the frustration of this. And when you read these stories, it's hard to really grasp. A lot of times when you're reading the Bible, 
you'll see, and then five years later they did this. And so, and, and it seems like it's happening overnight as you're reading it, because it took you 30 seconds to read it. But it's years, it's years, weeks, he is in this prison every day in this horrible place with horrible smells, horrible food, horrible conditions, no comforts whatsoever. Uh, and the weeks turn into months and the months turn into years. He is in this place for years. Now, all because of what his own brothers had done to him. Again, I don't think we can grasp it. Okay, it's one thing for us to have a bad day. I've had a bad week. Oh, the last few months I've really been sad. I mean, this is going on for years from a slave in this caravan to being the servant in this house to now being in prison. His life's getting worse now uh, after being in Potiphar's house. Now he drops, drops into prison. This, you, you can't even get your head around it. Imagine just 24 hours like this and turn it into a week of this. And then into years, 365 days a year, one after another, after being this place that is as close to hell as you can get without actually going there. This is awful. Why? Because of what his brothers had done to him. So anyway, this sets in this situation. Uh, eventually, Joseph hears a couple of guys talking and talking about these dreams. And Joseph was gifted with being able to interpret the meanings of dreams. So he interprets it for these guys. And then one of these guys hears the Pharaoh. He's the top dog in Egypt, okay? Nobody's more powerful than Pharaoh. The Pharaoh is all stressed out because he's having this dream and he can't understand what it means. And it's so vivid. It has to mean something. This one guy heard the Pharaoh talking and said to the Pharaoh, you know, when I was in prison, I met this guy who was able to interpret dreams and he did that for me and he was correct in what he had interpreted uh, and said, you might want to check with him. So Pharaoh's desperate. So he goes and sends for Joseph. Now, I assume they cleaned him up because he probably was hairy and smelly and you can only imagine how horrible uh, the aromas were, you know, Deanne and I, every once in a while, we'll, we've been watching some cowboy show or something. And these guys out in the West and all grubby and stuff. And they're out there for, you know, months at a time. And we keep saying to each other, man, they got to stink. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine sweating and working and cows and dust and no place to wash up? You got to reek after a while. I can't, it's hard just to watch the show without me thinking, they got a smell, okay? So anyway, this guy has been in Smellsville for years. So they take him, they clean him up. Uh, and I'm sure he was just grateful for that alone. And they bring him to Pharaoh. This is the most important man in the world at this time. And Pharaoh tells him, this dream. And Joseph says, I can tell you what that means. And he tells him what it means, that there was going to be 
uh, seven years of great prosperity and then seven years of incredible famine. And he says, if you're smart, you will take the years of prosperity, save up as much as you can so it will carry you through the seven years of drought. And Pharaoh all of a sudden realized what he was saying was true. And then he promotes uh, Joseph to the top of the heap. He becomes the second most powerful man in the known world at that time. Stop and think about this. He wakes up in stench and misery. And by the end of that day, he is the second most powerful, wealthy, influential man in the known world at that time. We are talking about a dramatic turnaround, right? Wow, how does this happen? So now he's on top of the world and Pharaoh puts him in charge of everything. Uh, the Bible says there was not a single thing in Egypt that Joseph wasn't in charge of. <laughs> Everybody had to go through him. Now, what in the world the Pharaoh did, I have no idea. Sitting around doing nothing all day long. But anyway, Joseph did everything. Actually, it's, it's a great analogy for some of you who struggle. I know some men and women, more women than men, struggle with this whole thing about spiritual authority in the home. And, and they get mad. Well, I have to do everything. He's not being the man. I have to. Look, what you do does not determine uh, your authority. Now, that's not fair in your home, and you can work on it, but that's not what determines what you do, doesn't. Here, Joseph does everything, but it never makes him the Pharaoh. We don't know that the Pharaoh did anything. It doesn't matter. Authority, scripturally, is based on who you are, not on what you do. It's a concept that we struggle in Western Christianity to grasp, quite frankly. In Eastern Christianity, the songs praise God for who he is. It's very beautiful. In Western Christianity, we tend to praise God for what he's done, right? Praise God for what he's done. And it should be praised. But whether he does anything or not, he still should be praised because he's God. And it's hard for us to, to grasp the concept. So we get in a situation where someone's doing most of the work. We think, well, they're the ones who should be in charge. Not necessarily. Uh, but it frustrates people. Some of you at your work, uh, you do all the work and your boss doesn't do anything. <laughs> Sounds like my employees. <laughs> but it never makes them the boss. It just, it is what it is, okay? The amount of work you do doesn't change who you are. So anyway, Joseph, he's doing everything. He's the big man on campus. He is making out like a bandit. His life is blessed beyond measure. Uh, and then after the seven years of prosperity, come the seven years of drought. And this is devastating that whole region. And it's affecting his brothers and his family, his dad, everybody uh, where they're at. Uh, and people all over the world now are all coming to Egypt because Egypt has food. They knew they were smart. They stored up big time for this hard time. So people all over the world. So you can imagine the degree of wealth that got transferred from the rest of the world to Egypt. Egypt was in pretty good shape to start with, but now they are making out like bandits. Everybody's coming, paying whatever they got to pay 
to uh, uh, get uh, food and they are benefiting financially at an incredible rate. It's one of the massive transfers of wealth uh, in history. So all of this is coming to Egypt. Things are going great. So Joseph is in charge of all of this. Well, eventually, guess who shows up at the door in Egypt wanting food? The brothers, all right? Dad sends them to go get stuff. And Joseph sees him and he recognizes him. Now, these are the guys who are responsible for the hell that he has gone through. You can imagine how you would feel about this. So anyway, Joseph sees him and he kind of messes with their heads. He's not really being, well, he's being a little mean, but not in a, in a vicious way. He's just trying to figure out where they're at and stuff. So eventually they come before Joseph and that's where we're gonna pick up the story. All that for an introduction. So in Genesis, the 45th chapter, starting at verse three, Joseph said to his brothers, because he's revealing himself, who, who he is. He says, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. They don't recognize him anymore. Okay, he was 17 years old when his brothers sold him. He was 30 when he became ruler in Egypt and then for seven years. And so he's like 39 years of age at this point from 17. They don't recognize him. And he probably looks a very Egyptian at this point, right? He's a wealthy, powerful Egyptian. He probably walked like an Egyptian. Probably got the makeup for the, all the eyes, the whole thing. So they're looking at it, and he's the most powerful guy and they're scared to death of him. Everybody was scared to death of him because of the power that he held. So he finally tells, guys, it's me, it's Joseph. And they're freaking out. They can hardly speak because they are terrified. Uh, and then Joseph says to him, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now, what does he do? He says, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there's been a famine in the land and for the next five years, there'll be no plowing and reaping, but God sent me ahead of you to preserve you for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. Seriously? Do you see what he does? He forgives them. He forgives them. He has gone through hell. Everything that's bad happened to him is because of those stinking brothers of his. They treated him so badly. He, if he would have been like most people, would have stewed and boiled and been bitter and angry as he could be. But as soon as he sees his brothers, he holds no ill will to them. He has no bitterness, no anger. He's walking in complete forgiveness. And I dare say that was the reason why God could take him and in one day take him from the very bottom of the pile to on top of the world in a single day. One of the reasons he could be so blessed is because he held no bitterness and unforgiveness. Now, this is a challenge because I know a lot of you listening to me struggle with unforgiveness. Somebody said something to you. Really? Yeah, he called me a poopy head. Oh, you know, we argued at my grandpa's funeral. Oh, I'll never speak to him again. And there's all this bitterness and craziness you struggle with. And you're wondering why your life stinks. 
and why God can't lift you up because you need to let it go. It says here, uh, verse eight, uh, Joseph says to them, so then it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, Lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt. And in verse 15, he says, and he kissed all his brothers and he wept over him, over them. And afterwards, his brothers talk with him and they all start catching up. Unstinking, unbelievable to see what happens here because he held no bitterness, no ill will to any of these guys. Jesus tries to teach us this. Look what he says in the gospel here, Luke the sixth chapter, verse 27. But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. Seriously? Uh, Some of you, your version of mistreatment is pretty light, but you're as mad as you can be. That ex-wife of yours, that ex-husband of yours, that I am is just bitter and nasty. As your pastor, I'm telling you, let it go. Why? Because you want God to lift you up and bless you. And he's not gonna do it when you keep hanging onto all that stuff. And he says in verse 31, that the, the famous golden rule, he says, do to others as you would have them do to you. And Jesus says this, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that? Even sinners love those who love them. And when they say sinners here, they're not talking everyday people like we're all sinners, okay? That was the word for the scum of the earth. These were the prostitutes. These were the drunkards. These were the thieves. These were the guys who were in cahoots with the Roman uh, army that were occupying them. They were uh, collaborators with the enemy. They were called sinners. And he said, what good is it if you love people who love you? Even sinners, these guys do that. And, And if you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. And if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great. And when Jesus says your reward will be great, it's pretty stinking great. Now how great, what version of this, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, This is where Jesus says, and we read this last week, give, verse 38, give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. This is God's version of reward. This is why God wants to do is to bless you. But you can't be blessed if you're not doing the right things, which is what we talked about last week. Okay, now we're not saved by what we do. All right, Ephesians 2, verse 8. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God. Okay? So we're not saved by what we do. Only Jesus can save us by faith in his work, which we're going to celebrate in just a minute as we take communion together. All right? This is just a gift of God. You can't be good enough. You can't give enough money for it. There's nothing you can do. God saves you by his grace, straight up. But if you want God to bless your life and lift you up take you from the bottom and stick you on top. Again, what version of that is to you? I don't know, but it's always good. All right, it doesn't mean you're gonna be the wealthiest man in the world. And as I said last week, I know a lot of you people say, oh Lord, help me win the lottery. He ain't gonna let you win the lottery. He loves you too much because he knows you win it, you're gonna corrupt yourself. 
Most people can't handle money. It makes them crazy. There are those who can. God blesses them as they are faithful. But it doesn't always have to be about lots of money. It's just you'll have more than enough. Instead of being down, you're up. Instead of being out, you're in. Instead of being whatever. Things go for you instead of against you. That's what it means to be blessed. If you are struggling in your life, if your life is constantly marked by misery, misery, I'm just so miserable, you're probably not being blessed. And it's not going to change until you start doing the right things. Get serious about your faith. Honor God. And one of the most important things is what we prayed with the Lord's Prayer earlier. Forgive us our trespasses, which means sins, our mistakes, as we forgive those who trespass against us. If you don't forgive people, God cannot and will not bless you. So I don't know if a bunch of brothers did something horrible to you that sent you to prison for the last 17 years or whatever it was. Um, you need to let it go. And most people have not had that... <sighs> Most of us have not had the kind of misery put on us that Joseph had. But through it all, he did not hang out to. He was always, he was, I kept saying, because of what those brothers did, that's what I'm telling you. He didn't do that. He let it go. He let it go. A lot of us, we don't let it go. Yeah, that guy did that thing to her friends. That's a bad place for you to be. So my encouragement to you, my imploring to you. My prayer, oh God, give them an epiphany. Let it go. You say, I can't. Ask God to help you. Get down on your knees tonight. Tears run on your face. Say, God, help me to forgive this person who wounded me so badly. And I'm telling you, if you'll get rid of that, you will be free. You'll be free of the burden of that. And you start to watch how God can take the worst day of your life and by the end of the day, make it the best day you've ever had. That's what he does. He turns things around. He brings life in the midst of death. He brings joy in the midst of sorrow. He brings blessings in the midst of troubles and persecutions. That's what our God does. But we have to line up with him and we need to do the right things. Uh, Becky's gonna come at this time and lead us all into uh, our time of communion as we reflect on these truths. And I'll see all you guys next Sunday. <clears throat> That's a good one. I'm gonna ask our ushers to get ready to um, serve communion at this time. In his epistle to the Corinthians, the apostle Paul wrote these words. He said that everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. So we always pause for just a moment before we share in this time of communion to just take the opportunity and explore our own hearts and um, to just set things right before the Lord before we participate in the bread and wine together. So if you wouldn't mind, would you bow your heads with me this morning and let's pray. Heavenly Father, before we partake of the bread and the cup this morning, in obedience to the scriptures, we pause now to examine ourselves. If we have sinned against you in thought, word, or deed, by what we've done or by what we've left undone, if we've not loved you with our whole heart, if we've not loved our neighbors as ourselves, if we've not extended the forgiveness that you call us to, for the sake of your beloved son, Jesus, who gave himself as a sacrifice for our sins, have mercy on us. Forgive us of all of our sins, 
strengthen us in all goodness, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, keep us in eternal life, that we may delight in your will and walk in your ways to the glory of your name. And as our heads are still bowed, if you're new to faith, or you've just never truly experienced that moment where God has turned the light on to your understanding, but it's beginning to make sense, you can start your life of faith today. I wanna encourage you right now to just quietly in your own words, ask Jesus to forgive you and then invite him to become the Lord of your life. And I promise you, he will bring all these things that we talk about to life. Amen.